Welcome to Lost Our Humanity, a true crime series. Warning, the following contains material that may be harmful or traumatizing to some audiences. Welcome back. We're glad to be back. Episode two. <laughs> That's not a lot, but it's progress. Um, I hope that you guys are enjoying the content so far. Give me any kind of constructive criticism, either over on Twitter or in the comment section on YouTube. I post video recordings of this same podcast. I would like to add subtitles so that we can reach podcasts in audiences that normally can't listen to them. Anyways, leave criticisms. I would be glad to take them. At this point, I'm just looking for anything that might improve y'all's listening experience. Okay, so how I came across Mr. Richard Chase, the serial killer from Sacramento, California. Well, I was researching last week's episode. We did Karen Greenlee, a famous American necrophiliac, also from Sacramento, California. And she was deeply insulted when a reporter compared her to a serial killer, which I could see why, because she wasn't a serial killer. She was guilty of other crimes. On May 23rd, 1950, in Sacramento, California, a baby was born. His name was Richard Chase, and he was born into a strict family, and it was said that he was subject to physical abuse by his mother and his father, but neither of those have been proven. Richard began showing signs of mental illness at an early age, and his parents did nothing to help him with this. It was said that he was just an overall unhappy and disturbed child. By the age of 10, Richard was already showing all three signs of the McDonald triad, which is a theory that suggests somebody could be a psychopath if they exhibit all three symptoms of this, which are arson, cruelty to animals, and unintended bedwetting. This theory was first proposed by J.M. McDonald in a threat to kill in a 1963 article in American Journal of Psychiatry. The first of these three symptoms is arson or fire setting. It is theorized to be less severe or a first shot at releasing aggression that is pent up in a child. And the third symptom in the McDonald's triad is unintended bedwetting. Now, if you think about it, all three of these symptoms could just be normal in most children, unless they are, of course, a psychopath. Um, that's why this theory is often proposed or argued against, because, I mean, this is just normal everyday child stuff. Now, what makes this theory so interesting is because a lot of psychopaths have admitted to having these symptoms, all three of them combined, or just two out of three of them, as a child. Either that or their family members will attest to the fact that they did this as a child well on into like adolescence. They would wet the bed until they were probably 12 years old, 13 years old. And it's just a sort of red flag system to look for in children. But just because your child has this does not make them a psychopath. Do not label your child as a psychopath. That is not what this theory is about. This theory, like many others in the mental health field, is not used to self-diagnose, okay? Let me make that very clear. See a therapist if you feel something might be off. Okay, we got off a little bit there for a minute, but let's get back to the story about Richard Chase. Now, it was said that in adolescence, he was already an alcoholic and chronic drug addict using mostly LSD and marijuana. He began starting fires and mutilating animals, which we already discussed. And as a teenager, he could not sustain and he couldn't keep it up without the aid of disturbing practices such as necrophilia or animal murder. All right, on to his adulthood. We've talked enough about his childhood. Chase's problems grew worse when his father allegedly kicked him out of the house and he developed hypochondria due to his major drug use. He would complain 
to his roommates or to doctors that his pulmonary heart artery had been stolen. His heart would stop beating or that his blood was turning into powder. That's what he was telling these people. Now, as you can imagine, Richard, he had a reason for all this stuff happening. He thought that he was vitamin C deficient. So he would hold oranges to his forehead and he thought that he could absorb the vitamin C via diffusion through his forehead and into his brain. <laughs> yes, I know. Chase believed that his cranial bones were shifting around like puzzle pieces and pulling apart and separating and just moving around. And he even shaved his head to monitor this activity. I said before that his father allegedly kicked him out and he was now staying in his own apartment. Well, he wasn't staying there alone. He had roommates and his roommates often complained that he was constantly under the influence of alcohol and marijuana and LSD. He paid no attention to guests and would walk around naked even if there was company there. Chase's roommates, they were sick of this. Like they dealt with it and they demanded that he move out. <laughs> but you know how Chase is. He was like, no man, I'm not, I'm not moving out. So his roommates moved out instead. And once he was alone in the apartment, Chase began to capture, kill, and disembowel various animals, which he would take back to his house. He would often devour them raw or sometimes mix the raw organs with Coca-Cola in a blender and drink his little milkshake. Now, this is probably going to come into play later, so I want you to just store this back somewhere. We're going to come back to it, but Chase believed that he needed these animals because he didn't have enough blood, so he had to take their blood and he had to drink it. Yes, he needed to drink their blood. For whatever reason, he believed that drinking their blood would keep his heart from shrinking. Yeah, that hypochondria is really coming into play here. It was said that Chase was in and out of mental institutions for much of his life, and in 1973, he spent a brief time in a psychiatric ward. But it didn't stop there, now did it? No. It didn't. It never does. In 1975, he was involuntarily committed after he was taken to the hospital for now injecting rabbit's blood into his veins directly instead of drinking it. As you can imagine, this gave him blood poisoning, so he had to go to the hospital. Staff at the hospital nicknamed him Dracula because he was just so fixated on blood. He would also get caught several times through the institution windows. He'd be outside just breaking the necks of birds and drinking their blood. <laughs> And he would steal syringes and use those to um, extract blood from therapy dogs. Yes. Poor puppies. <laughs> it was at this hospital that he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Big surprise there. I know. <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. And after undergoing several treatments and getting on psychotropic drugs, Chase was deemed no longer dangerous to society. At pause for a moment because <laughs> what he's literally breaking the necks of birds while he's in the hospital and extracting blood from their therapy dogs but he's no longer a danger to society so we're gonna release him in 1976 he was released into his mother's custody and this is where it all goes south again <laughs> oh that's great there's a train ignore that anyways so let's just take a minute to acknowledge the fact that this man is clearly mentally unwell and a danger to society and they released him from the mental hospital. I mean, come on now. Is he just going to prove later in the future that that's where he should have been? Better safe than sorry because 
everyone's going to be sorry later on. He's, he's dangerous. Okay, let's pick up where we left off. Um, so he was released into his mother's custody in 1976 after being deemed no longer a danger to society. And she took him in only to wean him off of his antipsychotic medications, claiming they dulled him. I, I am so angry with his mother. Like, I cannot even... She should have been held accountable, too. I'm sorry. But this man, who... <laughs> you know he's dangerous. You're his mother. You know he's dangerous. And you decided, oh, well, they're just... They're dampening my son's spirit. I mean, he's just a free spirit. And... Uh, what? You're just going to take his... You're just going to go against doctor's wishes and take him off his medicine? Now he's not going to argue with you because why would he want to take his medicine anyways? Ooh, I gotta, I, ooh, his mother just infuriates me, but we're going to move past that. Ooh. So she weaned him off his medicine, and even though he's been released from her, to her, from the mental hospital, he's not required to stay with her. Um, there was nothing legally binding him to, to be forced to stay in her home. And not long after his release of her from the hospital, he moved out saying that his mother was poisoning him. Which, in a way, I guess she was because now he's off his medicine and he's having all these delusions and she's the cause of it. Sorry. But that's what he believed that his mother was poisoning him. So he got his own apartment and initially he had roommates, but all of them moved out, leaving Chase to be alone once again, which only seemed to worsen his state of mind. Somehow or another, I don't know how because... He has a history of mental illness, but he manages to get his hands on a 22. And in 1977, he fired that gun into someone's kitchen. No one was harmed, so no charges were pressed, but it seemed to spark something in him. Um, later, an investigation uncovered that in mid-1977, Chase was stopped and arrested on a reservation in the Pyramid Lake, Nevada area. His body had been smeared with blood and he was carrying a bucket of blood and liver. Now, um, once it was determined that this blood was cow blood, there was a report made, but no charges were filed, which I think is stupid. That right there should have been Q. He's not on his medicine. Lock him back up. Case was released since this was cow's blood. I imagine if this was to happen today and he was arrested, he would have probably been sent straight to a mental hospital because everything now is computerized and all you have to do is type someone's name into the system to determine, oh yeah, this guy has paranoid schizophrenia, he's probably not on his medication, he needs a good three months to get back, back on track. But no, that's not what happened. And because of that, a lot of people suffer the consequences. A lot of innocent people... He just fell into these delusions since he was alone and nobody was there to rein him in until finally these delusions prompted him to just do the absolute unthinkable. Okay, so Christmas rolls around in 1977 and his mother says, Chase's mother says, no, I don't want you to come home. You can't come home for Christmas. Which, that would upset me if my mother wouldn't let me come home for Christmas. I know Chase was probably a lot to deal with, but you're the one that said that his personality was being dulled. So, if he's too much to handle, you should have made sure he stayed on his medications, but whatever. Anyways, this angered Chase and upset him, and on the day of December 29th, 1977, Chase would kill his first known victim, Ambrose Griffin, a 51-year-old engineer and father of two. 
he it was said that he was just shooting his 22 out the window of his car as he drove by and because there was shots fired at other houses that indicated that this wasn't a total accident but one of the stray bullets took and ambrose's life they start looking at ambrose's background to see if there was anyone that might want him dead if he had any enemies um, there seemed to be nobody that had motive to want to kill Ambrose, and we know if you don't have motive to kill, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to solve that murder. So, it was just categorized as random and would go unsolved for a while. Chase is getting away with this murder for now, and he just takes to breaking and entering into random houses for the next few days. Two weeks after the murder of Ambrose Griffin, he attempted to enter the woman, not to enter the woman, to enter the home of a woman because but because the doors were locked he walked away now this is important because later chase tells detectives that he took locked doors as a sign that he wasn't welcome in the home and he would just walk away like you could have been a murder victim but you locked your doors thank god unlocked doors however were an invitation to come inside just breaking into random houses now at this point and he hasn't really hurt anyone else but he's just destroyed house. Um, one couple caught him when they were returning home. He had like rummaged through all their belongings and he had opened a drawer with their child's clothing in it and had urinated inside it on the, the child's clothes. And he also defecated in their infant child's bed before running outside once the man caught him and he chased him, but Chase gets away. So also it's important to keep in mind that they still haven't identified Richard Chase, even though he's been caught, they have no idea that that's him. So Chase is just doing what he's been doing. He's breaking and entering into homes. Whoops, I hit something. And almost a month after Ambrose Griffin was murdered on January 23rd, 1978, Chase entered the home of David and Teresa Wallens. David Wallen was at work and Teresa Wallens had unlocked the door to take out the trash and left it open. She was three months pregnant at the time. Chase entered the home and shot her three times with the same handgun that he used to kill Griffin nearly a month before. Chase killed her, um, but it wasn't from the gunshot. It was from head wounds. He had stabbed her multiple times with a butcher knife, and he, after she passed away, committed necrophilia acts on her body, on her corpse. It was said that he removed multiple organs, cut off one of her nipples, and drank her blood before stuffing dog feces from the Wallens yard down her throat just before leaving. Um, she was found by her husband when he arrived home from work, disemboweled and drained completely of blood. Um, it appeared that Chase had collected her blood in a yogurt cup to drink it. Once again, Chase was not a suspect. We'll talk about that more in a second. Chase, for whatever reason, wasn't a suspect. Now, this is Sacramento, California. I don't know how large of an area it is, but I'm pretty sure there's only going to be one crazy person walking around drinking blood. I mean, that would be my assumption, right? But he wasn't a suspect. Um, again, things were not computerized back then, but you would think that the police that have arrested him before would say, hey, I know this guy. That was arrested a few months back and he was covered in cow's blood and he's been drinking blood he's been in mental hospital you would think that would come up at some point but it doesn't seem to not yet anyways now richard's tendency to drink blood and his cannibalistic nature and the fact that he wouldn't go in a locked door or he felt unwelcome in a home 
if the door was locked. That to me reads vampire. <laughs> and apparently it did to the media too because they dubbed him the vampire killer of Sacramento. Fireworks. You know, that, that was the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> Teresa's horrific death brought the FBI in and it kickstarted an investigation from them. There were incidents discovered a few houses down in a burglary where the body of a disemboweled dog was found. The FBI used the evidence left behind by the killer to create a profile. And the profile read as follows. A white male aged 25 to 27, thin, undernourished appearance, single, living in a home within one mile of the murders. Residents will be extremely unkempt and slovenly and evidence of the crimes will be found at the residence. The suspect will have a history of mental illness and use of drugs. Suspect will be unemployed loner who does not associate with either male or females and will probably spend a great deal of time in his own residence. If he resides with anyone, it will be his parents. However, this is unlikely. Suspect will have no prior military history, will be a high school or college dropout, and probably suffers from one or more forms of paranoid psychosis. End quote. Now, who does that sound like? Because to me, it sounds like a spot-on match for Richard Chase. But once again, the police in this town didn't put two and two together, and I don't guess the FBI did, did either. Like, anyways, the FBI started reaching out and asking the public for any information linking them to the killer. Any, anyone, if anyone knew anything, please come forward now. Now, we can all agree that Chase's pretty, he's got some pretty sick habits, and what he did to Teresa's body was terrible, but just four days later on, January 27th, Chase entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Merith, who was babysitting her 22-month-old nephew, and she also had her own son, Jason, there, who was six years old at the time. He, um, another resident of the home was Danny Meredith. He was actually a neighbor of Evelyn's and he just happened to be there at the time. So Chase encountered Danny first and shot him in the head with his 22 handgun, killing him. He then fatally shot Evelyn Merith, Merith's six-year-old son, Jason, and her 22-month-old nephew, David. The playpen where David would normally be found was covered in blood and contained a pillow with a bullet hole. It was assumed that he killed David and the body was missing, so he took the body with him. Before leaving, though, he mutilated Mira's body and engaged in necrophilia and cannibalism with her corpse, just as he had done Teresa. He drank blood from her neck and then allowed it to pull in her abdomen before draining and drinking it. She was partially cannibalized and missing multiple organs, and he had tried to remove one of her eyes, but failed. A visitor's knock at the door startled Chase, who fled in Meredith's car, taking David's body with him. And after he left, he stole Dave, He had stolen David's body and consumed some of his brain matter and blood. Months later, months later, like after he was already arrested and stuff, David's body was found decapitated and mutilated at a nearby church. Oh, gosh. Oh, that was a lot to take in. I know, that was a lot. So, let's just take a minute. I feel so terrible for that whole entire family. I mean, my God, those were children. 
That was a that was a baby. So you can imagine that the public is freaking out at this point and people finally start coming forward, I guess. The police started again asking the public to come forward and just let them know if they see anything suspicious. And one significant lead came to the police from a woman in her 20s who mentioned that she had ran into a man she had gone to high school with. He had approached her car and tried to get in on the passenger side, but she just drove off and luckily she got away. Um, she noticed that his eyes were sunken and he was extremely thin. He had bloodstains on his sweatshirt and she identified him as Richard Trenton Chase, which again, she knew him from high school. Um, police discovered that he resided within a mile of the murder sites. Um, ding, ding, ding. That matches with the FBI. What they said, the profile they put out. Police took Chase into custody. He was forcefully detained and a gun, 22, handgun, was found in the evidence in his home and linked him to all the murders. Authorities, which that seems kind of easy, you know. I guess he's... He's delusional. He's not going to think to cover this up too much. Anyways, authorities also discovered a 12-inch butcher knife, rubber boots, animal collars, three blenders containing blood, and several dishes inside the refrigerator containing body parts. A calendar was found in his apartment that contained the word today marked on the dates of the Wallen and Migrath murders. Now, I said earlier that David's body, the 22-month-old nephew of Evelyn Migrath, was found later on. Um... It was found in a church, mummified, decapitated, in a box. It was just terrible. <sighs> Police discovered that Chase had left DNA and complete shoe prints in Meredith's blood all throughout the Meredith residence. And when they searched his apartment after his arrest, they found the walls, ceilings, floors, refrigerator, and all of Chase's eating utensils and drinking utensils were soaked in blood. To me, it looks like you're finally going down. <laughs> like, it's over with for you, Mr. Chase. In 1979, Chase stood trial for six counts of murder. The defense's goal was to find him guilty of either second-degree murder, which would result in a life sentence instead of the death penalty, or to find him not guilty by reason of insanity due to his mental history. Um, their case hinged on his mental history and the suggestion that his crimes were not premeditated. So they were just trying to avoid the death penalty. They knew he was guilty. Somebody's gotta pay, I mean, and the defense, I would hate to be a defense lawyer. Like, you know Chase is guilty, and you know that he's a danger to society, but somehow you're gonna have to save this man's life. You have to stand up in court and defend him or justify his reasonings. I, I couldn't do it. I'm sorry. So the prosecution had it pretty easy. They knew he was guilty. Everyone knew he was guilty. They knew he was mentally unwell and they knew that he committed these murders. He was going down regardless of what they said, but they wanted him they wanted him to get the death penalty. That was their goal. So their case was that basically they had to prove that he was mentally unwell. But he was not delusional during the time of these murders and he knew that if he got caught, he was going to get in trouble for it, indicating that he knew murdering people was wrong. That was their stance on this topic. So what happened to Chase, you ask? May 8th, 1979, Chase was found guilty 
After four and a half hours of our two-day period of deliberation from the jury, he was found guilty of six counts of first-degree murder, rejecting the idea that he was not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was sentenced to die in the San Quentin gas chamber. Now, you might be asking how he was found guilty if he was mentally unwell. Well, yes, he was insane, and they knew that. But they're saying that he was not delusional during the time of the murders, which I don't know how they came up with that. I guess because he tried to cover his tracks. It was said in some articles that he wore gloves during the murders, which meant that he knew this was, that if he got caught, he was going to go to jail or he was going to be sentenced to the death penalty. And he was trying to cover his tracks. So that indicated that he was sane during the time of the murders. Now, I'm by no means a psychiatrist, but I do know that mental health up until recently was widely feared and in the 70s especially with cases like this where the mentally unwell person is actually a threat or dangerous people didn't know what to do with him I think that what happened was he was convicted of these murders and they were scared of him they didn't know what to do with him so the death penalty is what they shot for I think that's what happened you can't convince me otherwise but again I'm not a psychiatrist <laughs> If you know anything about true crime, you know that Chase is sitting in prison. It could be 10 or 20 years before his conviction is followed through and he's sentenced to the gas chamber. So he's just sitting there waiting it out now. And his fellow inmates and the prison officials even are terrified of him and his violent behavior. They often try to persuade Chase to kill himself, commit suicide. Um, I don't know if that shows that they were afraid of him. I feel like I would just stay away from him. That's what I would do. If I was scared of someone because of their violent nature, I definitely would not speak to you. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to go up to you and antagonize you farther. Like, I'm not even going to look in your direction. But these people were, I guess they were just ballsy. They were like, kill yourself, man. Which, don't do that anyways. But that's what they were telling him. So, Chase is just sitting in prison waiting his sentence. And he granted a series of interviews to Robert, Robert Ressler. Um, during which he spoke of his fears of Nazis and UFOs, claiming that he did what he had to do or they were going to kill him. Uh, basically, kill or be killed, and he believes anyone would do that. I don't think I mentioned earlier, but, you know, Chase believed his blood was turning to powder, and he thought the Nazis were doing that. They were responsible. Yeah. He also asked Wrestler to give him access to a radar gun so that he could apprehend the Nazi UFOs and... They could stand trial for the murders that he committed. <laughs> yeah. He also handed Wrestler a large amount <laughs> of macaroni and cheese, which he had been hoarding in his pants pockets, believing that the prison officials were in league with the Nazis and attempting to kill him with poisoned food. Yeah. <sighs> Following his conviction, he began receiving medication. And instead of actually taking the medication, he stockpiled it until he had enough to commit suicide. Um, he was Apparently it was anti-anxiety medication. And on December 6, 1980, Chase was found dead in his prison cell. And an autopsy revealed that it was due to his medications. That sounds too easy to me. I'm sorry. Maybe he really did commit suicide. I don't know. But... Y'all aren't making sure he's taking his pills. This was 1980. And I've worked in the medical field before. And I know that they stand there and they wait until you swallow your pill. You don't just get to spit it out and stop pilot. 
It didn't make any sense to me. Anyways, he did kill an infant, so I feel like the prison officials or maybe some inmates or somebody had something to do with that. That and the fact that they were prompting him to commit suicide and giving him the means to do so. Mm, it's a little suspicious, I would say. But I'm not a detective. <laughs> Besides, I'm not going to defend a murderer anyways. But I don't feel like... I don't feel like he committed suicide. I feel like somebody had something to do with that. Just my opinion. That and the fact that the prison officials and his fellow inmates were scared of him. And they just... They couldn't... Maybe they just couldn't wait out long enough. Because it can take years for the death penalty to take effect. And for them to actually do something about it. Maybe they just decided, let's get rid of him now. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts on this? Do you feel like Richard committed suicide? No, I do not. I do not believe that, but whatever. Anyways, also, do you feel like his mother should have been held accountable for some of this because she's the one that weaned him off his antipsychotic medications in the first place, and based on his mental health history, she would have known how he behaved. But she felt like it dulled his, his spirit, and that's a reason to put people in jeopardy. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, the institution actually said that he was acting well-adjusted, like he, he was doing really well, and then all of a sudden she decided to take him off his medicine. I feel like she should have been held accountable in some sort of way. I don't know what they could have charged her with. Medical neglect, maybe. I don't know. Anyways, let me know how you guys feel. Thank you for joining. Come back for episode three, which I think I'm going to do that one on the Rolex Killer seems pretty interesting to me so just let me know anyways this was the story of richard chase the vampire killer of sacramento thank you for tuning in to lost our humanity we appreciate you we hope you come back you can now hop over to youtube and twitter and leave comments with your concerns questions or theories and i will do them in the next q a so thank you so much